You may be familiar with the term, the worship wars. This referred to unfortunate yet common church conflicts in recent decades, primarily around 20 or 30 years ago, all of which centered around worship. These were wars that were not fought with guns and swords, but with guitars and songbooks. The clashes took place over how churches should worship, especially in music. And there was a lot of conflict. Some churches even split over these issues. Now, most people involved in these so-called worship wars were well-meaning, sincere Christian people. But with the clarity of hindsight, I believe that we fought over many of the wrong things. Because really, the, these wars were over what we believe should shape worship. What should shape our worship more? Modern culture or church tradition? Personal preferences or others' preferences or majority rule? Reverence or exuberance? Depth or simplicity? Familiarity or novelty. Now, I think all of those are pretty much false dichotomies or false choices that we didn't need to choose between. But these are the types of things, the types of issues that led to these worship wars. Now, I do believe that there is one thing that should absolutely shape our worship, but it's not culture or tradition or preferences, or ministry strategies, or anything of the sort. I believe our worship should be shaped and governed by the Word of God. After all, like we saw last week, worship is supposed to be all about God for His glory. It's through God's gospel that we can worship in the first place, and, and we come before God's Throne, And so it stands to reason that God's opinion on worship should matter the most to us. And therefore, that's what we're seeking to do now, to go to God and hear what he has to say. Because we, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what issues or controversies we may face one day. Who knows what worship wars may, may flare back up down the road. So we have to, to stand guard, to be on our guard, to keep the main thing the main thing. We must constantly reevaluate ourselves according to the Word of God. I invite you to open your Bibles up to Colossians 3 at this time. Colossians 3. We'll start actually back in chapter 1, but we'll be focusing mostly in, in Colossians 3. Last week we began a, a new series of messages on worship which we believe is at the core of our identity as a church, along with the core purpose of uh, as us here, as human beings here on earth. Like This is why we're here, to worship God. So, how should we worship then? Now, I attempted to define worship for you last week to cut through any confusion there may be. I said that worship is coming before God and responding to him in order to glorify him. So it's to come into his presence, which is anywhere now through Jesus, 
and to respond to him, responding to who he is and or what he has done. And then in order to glorify him, to, to praise, exalt, magnify, to, to ascribe worth to God. I quoted Don Carson's definition as well, which said that worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God, precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. In the powerful little book of Colossians, Paul started out by praising God for his gospel and how it had had taken root in the believers from Colossae. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. He goes on to talk about some of the epic theology behind this. Our deliverance, redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, and sanctification, all of which Jesus has won by his saving work. In all of this, we should be, as verse 12 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It were to give thanks in it. Even going so far, we'll see, as to, to rejoice in our earthly suffering. And, and overall, though, we must learn to what it means to walk in Christ. That's what it says. Verse 6 in chapter 2. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See that scene, that theme just coming through of thanksgiving over and over again? Essentially, though, our entire lives should be affected by what God has done for us. We should eagerly pursue the things of heaven now. As chapter 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so we're sort of eagerly pursue the things of heaven. We're also to eagerly fight against these sins that still remain in us. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And when a bunch of people all start living like this, being molded to be like Christ, then it creates an entirely new kind of community. Look at what it says in verse 11. It says, here, in this community now, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were, you were called in one body. In one body. Like these are the, the heart postures and attitudes we should have toward one another now. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, and peace. And as Paul is constantly stressed, verse 15 ends with, and be thankful. Be thankful. Thankful for Jesus. Thankful for the gospel. Thankful for transformed hearts and lives. I'm going to focus in today on the two verses that come right after this. Which go beyond just the heart attitudes we should have as believers in the church and talk about the activities and actions that churches should engage in now. And while these activities could happen in almost any setting, I believe that they have special application for corporate worship. For when we gather together in the presence of God to worship him. So here's the, the big idea that I want us to see from God's word today. Which I hope becomes more and more true of us as a church as time goes on. And that is that the way we worship God. The way we worship God should be permeated by the word of God. The way we worship God should be permeated by the word. See how Paul says this. And be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So the word of God should dwell in us as God's people, as a church body. Like that's the context here. And given the, the surrounding emphasis on thanksgiving. Let's just marvel for a minute at how thankful we should be for the word of God. Because that the, that the God who reigns over the cosmos, would even care about miserable little creatures like us. To boggle the mind. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Like, what does God need us for? He's got the heavens declaring his praise. Especially since we're not only small, we're also so sinful, which means that we have rebelled against him. We've upended his created order. Like, there's not a command that God has given to us that we haven't defied. We, should be, we deserve to be disregarded, dismissed, and left to our own destruction. But God... God loved us so much that he made a way to save us. 
by sending Jesus to earth to die in our place and then to conquer death should amaze us. But did you know that even if Jesus had died and rose, we would never be saved without the word of God? That's because in order to receive God's salvation that he makes available through Christ, we have to have faith. Trusting in him to forgive us and, and wash us and make us new. Romans 10.9 is familiar to most of us. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know what comes shortly after that? But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So we need to hear something before we can call on the Lord and be saved. What do we need to hear? The word goes on. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's thank God that not only did he take notice of us and love us and wanted to save us and sent Jesus to save us, but that in order to, to finish this work, he spoke his word to us, inspiring people to, to write down, to, to pass on the very words of God, to, to speak that word to us in our lives. It is, it's a wonderful grace of God that he has revealed himself to us through his word. And thank God that his word has been supernaturally preserved for millennia now. Thank God that, that it, it is in a language we can understand now. And thank God that, that it has inherent power to transform our lives if we let it. I wonder, David, in Psalm 19, right after marveling at the heaven's praise of God, starts praising God for his word. It says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So now, let's look back at Colossians 3.16. And the picture that it paints for us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is a, a picture of going into a home and taking up residence there. Dwelling there. The word should dwell in us, it says, richly or thoroughly as opposed to barely or marginally. The New Living Translation says to let the word fill your lives. And the message paraphrase says to let the word have the run of the house. When we moved into our home several years ago, we didn't just set up a camp in our front yard. Right? We didn't leave all of our boxes piled up and unpacked. We didn't restrict ourselves to living only in one or two of the rooms of the house. We didn't try to, to keep our house as clean as it had been when it was staged to sell. Right? We moved into all of the house. We took it over. 
and we have lived in it. We unpacked our stuff. We, we filled cupboards and drawers and closets, arranged furniture, outfitted each room in the house, decorated with art and, and pictures, landscaped the yard, did renovations, hosted parties. Like It's where we sleep and eat and groom and cook and study and clean and play. In other words, we have dwelled richly in our home. We as a church should essentially be handing over our house keys to God and letting his word move in and take over the place. Taking up residence among us. Unpacking, organizing, filling up the spaces, redecorating, remodeling. We should treat the word like the owner of the house who has the run of the place, as opposed to treating God's word like a guest, which only comes to visit now and then, or who is allowed to, to take over the kitchen or the guest room, but not the family room or the bedroom, or to drop the metaphor, which is restricted to only certain parts of our worship. God's word should permeate every part of our worship. Our prayers, songs, sermons, communion, fellowship, giving, serving, everything. Like getting into every nook and cranny of what we do as a church. Sadly, so many churches today have worship that is almost devoid of scripture. The songs that are sung are filled with uh, a fluffy spirituality. The prayers are either rote or simplistic. I mean, some preachers can even preach sermons while not or barely opening a Bible. I don't say this to put others down, though. I say this to, to warn us of the danger. We must not slide into minimizing the role that God's word plays among us. Or else we will slide into apostasy and irrelevance. Letting God's word permeate our worship is really part of worshiping in truth. We saw worshiping in spirit and truth. God's word is truth. John Stott tells us that to worship God is to glory in his holy name. That is, to revel adoringly in who he is in his revealed character. God must speak to us before we have any liberty to speak to him. He must disclose to us who he is before we can offer him what we are in acceptable worship. The worship of God is always a response to the word of God. Scripture wonderfully directs and enriches our worship. So what does this look like? What is God's word dwelling richly in our worship look like? Well, as Paul continues his instructions here, he gives us some ways that this works itself out. Three ways, I believe, that, that our worship should be permeated by the word. First of all, Shaping our exhortation. 
Okay, God's word should shape our exhortation. In other words, our, our teaching and our preaching. Look what it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, there are other ways we teach people outside of preaching, of course, and, and every form of teaching should be shaped by God's word, whether it's in our small groups or Sunday school or in our homes with our families. But when the church gathers as a family, we have a special opportunity to teach and admonish using the wisdom that God gives us to make his word clearly proclaimed, which is done through preaching, of course. It's also done through calls to worship, regular scripture readings, and more. Teaching would be exegeting, that is to understand the text, exegeting, explaining, and then expounding upon what God's word says. Admonishing would be warning and correcting based on what God's word says. So that means I just taught you about teaching and admonishing right now. And if I tell you that we must faithfully do this as a church or else fail as a church, then I have admonished us. You might wonder, how is preaching or hearing God's word actually a form of worship? I first say that it's, it's clearly a response to God, response to his revelation, and if we are doing it to, to glorify him from our hearts, then it's worship. For a great example of this in the Bible, think of the way Ezra essentially led worship in the book of Nehemiah. If you might know the story, you might not, but after the Jews returned from exile, Ezra sought to reform Israel's worship. And Nehemiah 8 records this scene. Just read some of it for you. And all the people gathered as one man, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And he read from it, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. Now that's a church service. <laughs> and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, the Levites helped the people to understand the law. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading, which I might add is a great example of expository preaching. Taking the word of God, seeking to clearly communicate the sense of it, what it says. But notice in that passage there, people obviously worshipped during the reading of the word of God. Ezra did too. He, he blessed the Lord as he preached. And the word of God then, then led the people further and deeper into worship. And so should it be for us. Today, some people claim that preaching is dead. That a... A monologue sermon is an antiquated relic of a bygone era. 
And certainly there are other ways to preach and teach and admonish. But I'd beg to differ on it being dead, having experienced firsthand the, the life transformation that the word brings. That God's word does not return void. And I've experienced that, that life transformation as a, a, as a hearer of the word myself and for others as a, a preacher of the word. The word of God is alive and active because the Holy Spirit is alive and active. And he's still speaking. Let me ask you this. Do you want to be righteous? Do you want to be competent? Do you want to be equipped as a Christian to do good in this world? If you answer yes to any of that, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. In another book, Paul tells his protege, Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. I'd say that we ought to devote ourselves to this until Jesus comes. So, if you are already a teacher in some form of the word, teach the word faithfully. If not, but maybe God will give you a passion for the word, Learn to rightly divide it. Learn to teach it. Learn to proclaim it. Our world desperately needs more faithful Bible teachers. And then all of us, though, no matter who we are, need to learn to devote ourselves to hearing the Word of God. So, how should we teach, admonish, and receive teaching and admonishing in a worshipful way? I'd say by treasuring the word of God, loving it, by listening intently to it, like the people did for Ezra, by reading it, by using it to inform our prayers, our songs, by obeying it, living it out. In all these ways, we ascribe honor to the God who gave us his word. David Platt says, worship is a rhythm of revelation and response. Revelation, God reveals and we respond rhythmically over and over again. Allow me to just admonish you for a minute. Can people watching you tell that you treasure God's word? Can they tell that in you? Do you prioritize it in your life? your schedule? Can others see it in your eyes that you delight in hearing God's word? Are you, are you clearly seeking to, to glorify God by both giving and receiving exhortations? And then really think, if not, if not, what needs to change about the way you worship? I hope and pray that we at Calvary always keep God's word as the shaper of all of our teaching. But 
That's not all the word should shape. It should also shape all of our singing. Our singing. Many people think that uh, preaching and singing are two very distinct activities. Like Bob Coffin observes, saying most people understand it like this. Worship is when we sing and experience God's nearness, express our love for him, and allow his spirit to move in our midst. All right brain activities. Hearing the word, on the other hand, appeals to our left brain. It's mind food. It's for our intellects, designed to make us think, not feel. But singing and preaching aren't incompatible or opposed to each other in any way. Both are meant to exalt the glory of Christ in our hearts, minds, and wills. The whole meeting is worship. The whole meeting should be filled with God's word. Now this actually comes directly from scripture, what we read today. Look at it. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then notice, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And thus we see that the way we worship should be permeated by God's word, shaping our exaltation. Not our own exaltation, of course. <laughs> our exaltation of God through our singing. The word should shape our exaltation. Paul says that, you know, that singing is a way to let God's word dwell in us richly. That means that I think that our songs should be chock full of truth. And they should quote scripture, refer to scripture, allude to scripture, reflect scripture, echo scripture's themes, remind us of scripture. Our song's content should be thoroughly informed by God's word. Now, this doesn't mean we only recite scripture in song. There's obviously a variety of types of songs used, referred to here even in Colossians. We need songs that explain and, and clarify and fill us with wonder at the truth. But, the, but, the, but there's no question that all our songs should be shaped by the truth of God's word. That's why we place a, a much higher value here at Calvary on the content and lyrics, the words of a song, than on its popularity or the catchiness or groove of the music. Now, just as a side, you can put lame music to truth and I think end up insulting the truth you're trying to sing about. The quality and excellence of music does matter, but the truths that are being communicated by the music matter more. This is why there are, are certain songs you'll hear on the Message Sirius XM or on Spotify that we'll never sing here. Because it, they might not reflect truth that well. Not all do, but some might. And yes, there's a, a place for simplicity or repetition. You can find those in the Bible. Just as there's a place for complexity and, and deeper theology. The key issue is truth. Right? Are the songs we're singing teaching truth to us? Right? And are our songs exalting God by accurately proclaiming his glorious truth, his revelation back to him? Now, yes, worship is more than just singing. But biblically, singing is a key way to worship 
John MacArthur says that our worship of God involves far more than just what we sing in church. Nevertheless, how and what we sing is one of the best barometers of our worship. If we are authentic worshipers who praise the God of Scripture in spirit and in truth, that ought to be obvious in our music. You know what a barometer is? It's a, it's a tool that measures air pressure, like a thermometer would measure temperature. It tells us whether the air pressure in a location is low or high. And so if, if singing is a barometer of your worship, what is that barometer saying about you? Are you a true worshiper? Are you actually moved by the things of God? How healthy is your heart and your gratitude to God? After all, that's how we're supposed to be singing. To sing these songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Keith and Chris and Getty say that the root of true thankfulness is the gratitude in our hearts for the unmerited benefits of God's goodness in our lives. The root blossoms into a good, positive, and loving attitude towards the call to sing from God and from the leaders he has given us in our churches. It is hard, impossible in fact, to sing what you are excited about in your spirit and grateful for in your heart in a way that is tepid, tentative, and withdrawn. Deeply felt thankfulness produces a sound from our voices that is robust and enthusiastic. As we obey the command to sing, we are, or should be, unleashing a congregational sound of conviction. If we aren't, our children or visitors looking on have every right to wonder if what we are singing is truly important to us. In this sense, our singing betrays the truth about us for better and for worse. Kids often set a great example here whenever they're actually paying attention. When kids sing, they tend to sing from the heart with enthusiasm. Just ask my three-year-old daughter to sing you a song from Frozen. You'll see what I mean. Adults tend to grow more reserved as we get older. That's not actually a sign of maturity, believe it or not. That's something else. I know that many of you here at Calvary, you love the word of God. You love singing truth from it. And so I'll say to you, if you love this, keep it up. If your heart is healthy, keep it up. Paul mentions three different types of songs we should sing here. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, there's no consensus on what the actual differences between these three types of songs were. Psalms is probably referring to the Hebrew Psalms in the Old Testament. But then again, the word psalm simply means song. Hymn, the, the hymns they're talking about, almost certainly do not refer to the songs exactly as our hymns today, like we'd find in a hymnal. And spiritual songs could be a catch-all for any other kind of song that these two kinds of songs didn't mean. The point was, 
there should be a variety of musical forms and musical songs used by the church. God is too great, his word is too rich, and the gospel is too marvelous to be expressed through only one form of singing. I was recently evaluating the songs we sing here at Calvary, and I thought, you know, we've done our, our best to stay true to God's word in what we sing, and we do have a variety of different kinds of songs that we sing, though there's always room for growth in, in diversity or creativity. But there's one area in which I think we are clearly deficient, and that's singing the Psalms. We've basically abandoned them, right? The Psalms are, are the only divinely inspired hymn book in the world. Like there are good reasons that, that we should be singing from the Psalms, as the Psalms lend us powerful language to proclaim God's greatness, while at the same time expressing this massive range of human emotion. They are so sincere and genuine for where we are. So, as a, a basic way to address this imbalance, I'd say among us, we're going to do something together. We're committed to every song, every new song we introduce in 2020 being based on a psalm. And as an added bonus, whenever we introduce a song, which we're aiming to be the, the last week of every month, we're going to preach on that psalm. Okay, so we really understand it and, and we'll lift our hearts together. In Psalm 119, it says, my lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. I'm excited about this. Like we'll get to join in doing that and singing of his word together. So the word should be shaping our exhortation and our exaltation, our teaching and our singing. But Paul's not satisfied to limit our worship to these. He concludes, look how he does in verse 17. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now this obviously goes way beyond our corporate worship into absolutely everything we do in life. But our worship is definitely included in whatever you do in word and deed. <laughs> and whatever we do is clear to be done in a worshipful attitude, pointing to Jesus, giving thanks to him. It says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Like if that's not worship, what is? So I think there's one final point here. Now, the way that we worship God should be permeated by the word of God, shaping everything. Shaping our everything. The word should dwell in us richly in whatever we do as we seek to glorify God. Doing something in the name of Jesus is a way to say you're doing it for Jesus. You're doing it as his representative in order to direct attention to him and praise him. Just, just think for a minute through our days, how we're living. 
are we doing everything in Jesus' name? Giving thanks to God. Like ask yourself, uh, am I changing diapers? Paying bills? Working my job? Going to school? Hanging with my friends? Using my phone? Sending messages? Watching TV? Eating food? Etc. All with this as my primary motive and aim. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, in all of our daily activities, there's always a way to worship God. Giving thanks. Giving thanks can turn any moment into a moment of worship. But since we're focusing today on our worship as a church family, let's just remember, everything we do, absolutely everything as a church should be done out of gratitude for God, or gratitude to God, and in order to glorify God. This should be our our purpose, our mission, our our aim. Like This should be our, our purpose in getting up on a weekend morning and braving an ice storm. To worship the Lord. This should be our, our aim. In, in, by the way, that was a compliment to all of you who are here. <laughs> but this should be our aim in, in opening our mouths and, and exercising our, our voice boxes in song. This should be our, our motive as we bow our heads and, and pray to our Father who is in heaven. This should be our, our goal as we place ourselves under the teaching of the word week by week. This should be our focus as we engage with our fellow believers around us in everything, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And, by the way, does this sound like a burden or a delight here? Delight, right? It should be a joy to us to hear this. If we love Jesus, then we should be eager to have the word of Christ show us Jesus over and over again. And then we should be eager to express our heart's love in the way that we respond. Because we ought to be eternally thankful for what Jesus has done for us. We can now give thanks to the Father through him. Through him, he's made the way. And as it makes clear here, we should be thankful before, during, and after, all throughout this, and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you ever begin to lose the heart to worship God in these ways, then remind yourself of everything you have to be thankful for.
gratitude is really the only place to start or restart. And it's the inevitable way that we're going to end. Giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending the spirit to continue speaking your word to us, continue transforming us, changing us into the likeness of your son. You please do that in us. Wherever we are not grateful. First of all, Lord, forgive us. And then open our eyes to see just how thankful we should be. And then move us to actually give thanks as we gather to worship you together. Thank you again, in Jesus' name, amen.